Well, good morning again. And thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for your prayers on my behalf this past week. I trust you've had a good week and you're prepared to worship our Lord and Savior today as we look into His Holy Word together. I want to say right up front that this has been a very convicting study for me, to say the least. And God has taught me much these 11 verses that Michael read earlier. Or in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 6, picking up where Kent left off last week as we began, and as I often do, I want to start by asking a question for you to consider. Here's the question. Have you ever had any embarrassing moments in your lifetime that you distinctly remember but would like to forget? I would envision that for most all of us, the answer to this question is a resounding yes. Like the true story, I heard about a woman who had invited several families over for dinner and was serving a pasta dish. In her haste, she forgot to refrigerate the homemade spaghetti sauce and it had set out on the counter all day long, such that she was worried about spoilage. But it was just too late to cook another batch. So she called the poison control center and voiced her concern. They advised her to boil the spaghetti again, and she should be okay. Later that night, the phone rang during dinner, and one of the guests volunteered to answer it. The guest's face dropped as he called out to the entire audience, it's the poison control center, and they want to know how the spaghetti sauce turned out. <laughs> or this true story of a man and wife who are visiting a new church for the very first time and met a couple sitting close by who in the course of the conversation described their neighborhood they had lived in for years as very friendly. Whereas the couple visiting the church said their experience in their new neighborhood had been just the opposite. Following the service, the couple who had lived there for years got into their car and drove home, but as they approached their house, they were horrified to see that their newfound friends they had met at church were pulling in the driveway next door. I will tell you for me personally, <clears throat> and I've shared this with some of you I know in the past, but I remember distinctly one very embarrassing moment was when I was in college and I was attending a big youth event at a new church that my sister Sherry was attending. And as we were in all a, a huge group together where I literally knew no one, the host for the evening said out loud to everyone, we have a guest with us tonight that Sherry has brought, and I would like him to introduce himself. Now I am very shy, and it made me so nervous, but I tried to be bold, and stood up in front of everybody and said, I'm Brad Smizer and I'm Sherry's sister. <laughs> and everybody laughed and laughed. And I felt like crawling under a rock. I was so embarrassed. So what about you? I know you've had those types of moments as well. Sometimes it's funny when the embarrassment is on somebody else. When it happens to you, it isn't funny at all. Yet there's another type of embarrassment that takes the emotion of self-consciousness and awkwardness one step further. And that is when our embarrassment turns to being ashamed. Or a sense of guilt comes upon us because of our own actions and faults. Today's passage, and in fact throughout the New Testament, 
We're often warned about and even exhorted to be on guard about the temptation of being ashamed about one particular thing. And what is this thing? It's the act of being ashamed about the gospel in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sadly, this shame can happen to all of us at one time or another. Why? It usually comes down to fear of what others may think or say or how they may respond. Yet our shame, our shame, brings our Savior shame. And for sure hinders our effectiveness when we fail to speak up or stand up for the Lord. That's why I think exhortation is being implored here from Paul to Timothy in his words. And exhortation is just as applicable to us today as we think about these shortcomings in our own lives. I looked up the Greek word for exhortation. It's parklesis, or paraklesis, and carries the twofold sense of exhorting and consoling. Writers such as Paul and John meant this word as an intimate admonishment to fellow believers of the importance of walking and pleasing God by abounding more and more in Jesus Christ and not to ever be ashamed of following after him. This morning, this is just one of the exhortations we will see in the context of our verses. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Furthermore, then we beseech, or we urge you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so you would abound more and more. God has exhorted me as I've done this study, and I trust he would exhort you as well. So, with that introduction, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this passage. It is so practical, and yet so convicting as we think about being ashamed of you. I pray that you would just really teach us this morning, help me to be a humble servant, an instrument of yours, and I pray that the scriptures would be revealed and the truth within them. So I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin by reading um, first just a few verses. And by the way, this is what I call this message, exhortations in keeping the gospel. So exhortation number one, let's look at verses 6 through 8a. Follow along as I read. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee, by the putting on of my hands. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. I called this first exhortation, exhortation number one, be not ashamed of the gospel. We begin here in verse 6 with a direct word of instruction from Paul to affirm Timothy's uh, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that faith was genuine, as Kent talked about last week. He says, remember, remember, Timothy, to stir up the gift that is within you. <clears throat> Some translations, as Michael read, used the words fan the flame or keep ablaze or kindle afresh for the word stir up. And it pictures a man placing a dry tinder on a glowing coal and then blowing on it to create a flame and keep it going. What is this gift that should be stirred up? Most commentators think it refers to the ability and privilege of preaching and teaching 
that was affirmed on Timothy as ordination when hands were laid upon him by the local church, as stated in verse 6. Timothy was to keep this gift ablaze by exercising it passionately. One author said, and I quote, There is no room for sluggishness in the Christian life. Rest? Yes. But laziness, passiveness, and timidity should never characterize the believer. So continuing on with this charge, Paul now directs Timothy in verse 7 to maintain this passion by saying, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. In essence, Paul is addressing any shyness or weakness Timothy may feel within himself by reminding him that fear does not come from God. What does come from God is the, is the Spirit of God, and that's capital S for the Holy Spirit, who gives courage and boldness to overcome our most inner fears. While human confidence falters, the Holy Spirit gives us three specific gifts, and Paul goes on in verse 7 to describe the godly attributes produced by the Spirit. First, you see there it's power or dynamis, the supernatural ability to do the will of God. It is futile, absolutely futile, to try and serve God without the power of the Holy Spirit. Our talents, our training, and our experience can never take the place of the power of the Spirit right residing within us. Secondly, the Holy Spirit produces love, agape love, the distinctly Christian brand of love that behaves unselfishly and seeks the highest good of another. True Christian love, energized by the Spirit, enables us to love others, even at a sacrificial level. And then thirdly, a sound mind. The Greek word here is sophronimos, meaning self-discipline or self-control. One who is sensibly minded and balanced and has, has his or her life under control. One definition <clears throat> stated a behavior that reflects an orderly mind of God. Power, love, self-control. Timothy did not need any new spiritual ingredients in his life. All he had to do was to stir up what he already had. So after charging Timothy to be fearful, but not be fearful, but rather develop and use these gifts fearlessly and earnestly by relying on the Holy Spirit, he now continues in the same vein by giving him the first exhortation we'll look at today. And it's found in verse 8. Therefore, which means... Listen up, Timothy. You need to hear this. And to personalize it, listen up, Brad. This is so important, and you really need to grasp it. Be not ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Or rather, be not ashamed of the gospel. The word testimony here is referring specifically to Christ's teaching, his life, his death on the cross, and most importantly, his resurrection. That is the gospel. Now, I want to give you a little context here as to the difficulty Timothy was facing in sharing the gospel, particularly as it relates to the resurrection. Let me read from a commentator about the resurrection, and we've studied this before in previous gospels, but I want to quote. In first century Ephesus, the idea of a resurrection would have been more shameful than death on a cross. 
To the Greek way of thinking, influenced by Plato, the realm of substance we inherit on earth is but a substandard shadow of a perfect or pure idea or thought. Humans then are divine sparks, just divine sparks, trapped within prisons of fleshly matter, and death is a liberation. Freed from its captivity in the realm of substance, the mind can now fly to its true home of the idea. Therefore, to the Greek mind, resurrection, the reunion of mind and body, was absurd. Why, they wondered, would anyone want that? So as you can see, this is completely contrary or different way of thinking than you or I may consider, but helps to more fully understand what Timothy was facing and the encouragement, the exhortation to not be ashamed of the gospel, but to proclaim, proclaim the truth of it boldly, including the resurrection, even in the midst of the sneering of the people. Note, verse 8 goes on to say, nor of me, his prisoner. Not only were many scoffing at the gospel, but they were scoffing at the messenger. Paul and Timothy were not to be ashamed, and Timothy especially was not to be ashamed of Paul's testimony and his witness. I I stopped here and I thought about this a minute. If you think through that scenario in present day situations, it reminded me that oftentimes so-called, what I would call cowardly Christians, cowardly believers, refuse to associate with brothers or sisters who are taking a stand for Christ. This may happen at a school where a believer speaks up with a word of witness and Christians show little support. Or it may happen on a sports team when a player refuses to take part in a sinful post-game activity and other Christians on the team leave him alone to stand by himself. Or at the workplace or on a business trip when an employee does not join the guys or gals in something sinful and the other Christians see no harm in having a so-called little fun. The question really comes down to are you, are you willing to not be ashamed and stand up for Christ? Are you willing to stand up and support when other Christians make a bold statement about the Lord? Or instead, will you be ashamed? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Or the warning in Mark 8.38, Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me in my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If you look up the word ashamed in the Greek, it means disgraced or personally humiliated. A person ashamed in this way is like someone singled out for misplacing his confidence. He trusted in something or someone, but now he doesn't. The word can also refer to being dishonored because of forming the wrong alliances. So when Paul says to not be ashamed of the gospel, he's saying God gives you the power to never misplace your confidence and there should be no disgrace in declaring it outwardly. Paul has given his life to proclaiming the truth that Jesus himself had revealed to him and Timothy is being exhorted to continue to do likewise. As I personalize this, there is no doubt that such an exhortation then 
to not be ashamed applies to all of us here today. Just as Paul placed his confidence in the gospel so we can proclaim with boldness the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. Yet, what keeps us from doing so? What is it that would make us be ashamed? I think the answer is found in verse 7. It's that four-letter word, fear. Fear that I will not know what to say. Fear of what they will think. Fear of rejection or losing a relationship. Fear of what they might do. Fear they will ask a question. Fear of, well, you fill in the blank. How do we overcome fear? Well, remember God's power. We've talked about God's power, the Holy Spirit residing within us. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power. We need to constantly put to mind to remember Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It is the gospel that saves people. Secondly, we need to remember God's presence. Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. We need to remember God is with us. And God is the one who gives us boldness. And then thirdly, remember God's protection. Isaiah 41, 10. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Or the psalm we sang this morning, Psalms 3. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me. I recently saw a t-shirt that said, You can face your fears. However, I think that was really wrong. It should have said, You can face your fears, but only with God's power, God's presence, and God's protection. I like what Oswald Chambers said, and I quote, The remarkable thing about God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. Well, let's move on to exhortation number two and read verses 8b through 12. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Whereunto I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed." For I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I call this next section, Exhortation Number 2, Be Willing to Suffer for the Gospel. Not only must we not be ashamed, but Paul now adds that Timothy must be willing to suffer for the Gospel, as we see here in verse 8b, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the Gospel according to the power of God. Certainly suffering for Christ is a major theme in this letter. 
And in this particular section we just read, Paul explains three things. How we suffer for the gospel, why we suffer for the gospel, and when we can expect suffering for the gospel. Let me begin first by saying that none of us like to suffer. If I were to ask for a show of hands, who likes to suffer? None of you would raise your hand. Whether it be physically or emotionally, mildly or acutely, chronically or temporarily, sooner or later, sooner or later, everyone suffers, including Christians. But given the realities of our union with Christ and the present hostile environment we live in, Christians can and will suffer specifically because of their faith. Furthermore, given the fact that the Lord we worship was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, of all people, Christians should expect suffering to be part of our experience in the world as we share the love of Christ. So, first, how we suffer for the gospel. From verse 8b, according to or by the power of God. Like Timothy, we are weak, common vessels. But here again, as we saw in the first section, by God's power, we can endure suffering and hardship. Yet, <clears throat> humanly speaking, we will try everything in our own power, in our own means, to endure the opposition, weakness, and persecution. Yet, when we use this fleshly means, we fail miserably. Why? Because we're not abiding in the vine, as John 15, 5 says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We have to remember God's word. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. What? In weakness? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. That's the key. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whether it be laughter, scorn, ridicule, anger, or even abuse from others, we can endure the suffering by the power of God. I recently read about a Christian who was in prison. He was there because he shared his faith. And his punishment was to be burned at the stake. He was certain in his mind he would never be able to endure the pain and suffering of the fire. So one night, he took an open flame and he rubbed his finger right above the flame. Ouch! He thought to himself, I will disgrace my Lord. I will never be able to bear the pain. But when the hour came for him to die in that burning fire, God gave him just the power he needed. He gave a noble witness for Christ. That's the power God gives us when we need it. And not before and so, remember, when we suffer, God gives us the power. Secondly, why we suffer for the gospel. Six simple words to remember. Because the gospel's worth it. 
In verses 9 and 10, we see why it's worth it. Paul describes an awe-inspiring description of its very worth. Christ saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. Our salvation is totally unmerited. Whereas Jonah 2.9 says, salvation is of the Lord. In his sovereign grace and from the beginning of time, God rescues sinners from their wretched condition and places them into his kingdom forever. He has abolished death and brought life and immortality through the, his death on the cross. Our great salvation is rooted in nothing other than the person and work of Christ and Christ alone. That is why the gospel is worth suffering for. In a sermon by Charles Spurgeon titled Salvation Altogether by Grace, Spurgeon said this, and I quote, When Paul wanted to encourage Timothy, he did not attempt to persuade him by mere appeals to feelings, but rather by reminding him of the solid doctrinal truth which he knew Timothy believed. Feelings are important, but doctrine is essential in his suffering. Unquote. Which leads me to the third explanation by Paul and that is when we can expect suffering for the gospel. When? Answer, most any time we share. From verse 11, Paul describes himself as an appointed preacher, apostle, and teacher of the gospel. And like the faith of Paul and Timothy, our faith also should move us to share the same commissioning and this same message of the truth. We are to shine like lights in a dark world, knowing that as we live for Christ, we can expect opposition and even suffering. Paul said in verse 12, This is the cause for which I suffer, but with great assurance and great confidence, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he, that God, is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. So have you ever suffered for the gospel? Laughed at, shouted at, looked down upon, rejected. I'd encourage you to remember in those situations, Christ. Isaiah 53, Christ, he was despised. He was rejected. He was afflicted. He was wounded. He was bruised. He was chastised. Yet he opened not his mouth. By his stripes we were healed. Last section, starting in verse 13 through verse 18. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. That good thing which was committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. This thou knowest that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me of whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. I called the third exhortation, exhortation number three, be adamant in guarding the gospel. As Paul urged Timothy in verse 12 to keep that which he had committed... He now continues on in verse 13 and 14 to reinforce the importance of holding fast to the sound doctrine that he had been taught in faith and love found in Christ Jesus. In other words, the truth of the gospel must be kept and guarded through stirring up the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. I want you to notice 
two specific things in two verses and how the, the, the flow of the words fits so well. Hold fast the form or the pattern. Some of your translations say pattern. Guard the sound words, the doctrine. Keep the good thing, the gospel. Just as an architect might sketch a pattern before adding the details, or an artist might sketch a design of a painting before completing it, or as a writer might start an outline before writing the manuscript, so Timothy was to follow Paul's outline and then expound and apply it. Timothy was not told to make up his own design, nor add to Paul's, nor take away from it. Instead, he was to take the sound doctrine, the gospel of truth, and share it with others. And in doing so, he was to guard it above everything else. I like it that then Paul bridges the exhortations with examples in the remaining four verses in which he provides both negative and positive real-life experiences. First, the negative from verse 15. Paul mentions two men, Vagellus and Hermogenes, who turned away from him in Asia. We know nothing else about these two men because they are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament. But whoever they were, they, were certainly, they certainly disappointed Paul by their actions, by not holding to the gospel. And then moving on to verses 16 through 18, we see the positive. In contrast to his deserters, Paul mentions Onesiphorus, his refresher, and asks the Lord to grant mercy to his household. If you look up his name, it actually means profit-bearing, and I think that term runs well, or runs true with his inner character. Why did he refresh Paul? Because verse 16 tells us that he was not ashamed of Paul, even though Paul was in chains, which certainly implies he was not at all ashamed of the gospel. Verse 17 also adds he diligently sought Paul out while he was in prison, and that he was successful in finding him. I see in this verse that while Onesiphorus might have indeed met some of Paul's physical needs, he undoubtedly refreshed him by his loyal support of friendship. Verse 18 concludes, A blessing on his beloved friend that God might pour out his mercy on him for all that he had done in his ministry to Paul. And that leads me to my conclusion and application for today. If we look at Onesiphorus, to me, illustrates the points we've seen here in the passage today. He was unashamed of the gospel. He was willing to suffer for the gospel. And he was adamant in guarding the gospel, an example of unwavering faith and friendship. But if we look at the other two, Vagellus and Hermogenes, we see the direct opposite, leaving us with a final question that we all should ask ourselves. Which example am I living? Do I line up with Onesiphorus, a loyal and faithful servant, unashamed of the gospel, or am I like Phygelus and Hermogenes? In layman terms, I thought of the word fickle. Are you faithful to the gospel, or are you fickle? And if you look up fickle, it means your confidence is changing. Your confidence it's changing, especially in regard to one's loyalties and affection. We are living in 2023. A lot has happened in the last 10 years. Well, in fact, a lot have happened in the last two years. 
I don't know where we're going as a country. I don't know what the immediate future holds. God does. But it certainly seems like tough times are ahead. Really tough times for those of us who call ourselves Christians. That's why this message is so applicable and timely. We've had it easy living in America. But that could soon be coming to an end. Way back in the 19, sorry, the 1880s, Charles Spurgeon issued a warning in England. And I see this mirrored today in our land. Here's what he said. <clears throat> Everywhere there is apathy. Nobody cares whether what that is, which is preached is true or false. A sermon is a sermon, whatever the subject, only the shorter it is the better. Until all that changes, until we return to our calling to go into all the world and preach the gospel without shame, the church is in danger of losing its impact on society. And that would be our generation's greatest loss. Unquote. Are you willing to be unashamed of the gospel? Are you willing to suffer for the gospel? Are you willing to guard the gospel? Will you be faithful or will you be fickle? My prayer is that we would strengthen our resolve to be faithful, faithful to the gospel, and to keep it no matter the cost. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the words we find here, the, the truth in the scriptures as we examine our own hearts in our own lives. Lord, cause us to be faithful. Lord, convict us when we have become ashamed of you, not spoken up when we should have, not said a word in season, <coughs> remain silent, or worse yet, um, may have even joined in with other non-Christians when a believer stands firm. Pray, Lord, that you would just wrestle in our hearts. And I do pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to reign true and that we re remind ourselves daily of how important it is to trust and rely on you and not our own strength. I know, Lord, even this week, probably most all of us will have an opportunity to exercise our faith. Help us to, to be faithful to you. In Christ's name, amen.